Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, Daniel 7 is obviously completely different from the first six chapters. These chapters really deal with what we call the end times or, or you know, the revelation. In fact, the, the, this is an, a, an apocalypse, which is the same word as we use for revelation. So, you know, at the end of the Bible, it should be apocalypse. But instead, we call it revelation, so it's easier for us, and it's not so ominous and everything. Yet it's the same meaning. But, you know, for, uh, chapter 1 through 6, you have all these historical stories about Daniel and, and his friends and everything that they've been going through, through throughout these different kingdoms that, that they're serving under. Then all of a sudden, chapter 7 through 12 are just very kind of odd. We get stories by Daniel and the visions that he has. And there's several differences between them. Chapter 1 through 6, and all the meanings are, are literally revealed to Daniel. And somebody has a dream. They don't understand the dream. They go find the, the, the one guy who can interpret that dream, and they go tell us about it, and he tells them about it. And they're very happy about that. But now Daniel has a dream, and he doesn't even understand it. Twice he asked for help in chapter, you know, in this, in chapter 7 of, of understanding the dream. He goes and says, can you help me here? Can you explain this to me? Now one thing I do want us to be careful of is we study chapter 7 through 12. We need to not forget chapter 1 through 6. Oftentimes we just go, oh, they're completely different, so let me just study 7 through 12. And we forget that 1 through 6 came before it. Part 1 is the, the history, and we, and we don't need to, to, as we move on to part 2, we don't need to forget about part 1. Chapter 7 is related to the first you know, six chapters in two ways. One, it's still written in Arabic. Now, as we, we kind of talked about, we hit chapter 2, and the writing changed from Hebrew to Arabic. And, and it goes all the way through chapter 7. And, and then it'll go back to Hebrew. But secondly, chapter 7 is directly a parallel to chapter 2. And if you, you know, want the CD on that, it's in the back. Talking about the different kingdoms that, that pop up and, and all that, the four eras of history. You know, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about the statue, and there's four parts of the statue, and Daniel comes in and, and uh, interprets that dream. It's a, it, it exactly parallels because we're talking about four kingdoms here. So they go kind of hand in hand here. So now in chapter 7, Daniel has a vision about four beasts. And the four beasts are what? Four kings or kingdoms. And it's going to be a little different teaching. This is almost going to be more educational until we get to the end here. But, but we, you know, it's, it's just because we don't quite understand everything that's going on here. But you have the four kingdoms that, say, you know, that appear in chapter 2 also. And here the Son of Man will come and destroy them. So they're connected together here. And, and if we understand the messages of chapter 1 through 6, it'll help us understand chapter 7 better. So here's the overall theme. In Daniel 1, uh, verses 2 and 9 and 17, there's one phrase that keeps repeating it. We translate it in several different uh, ways of saying it, but it's the same phrase. And, and it's the Lord gave, or the Lord granted, or the Lord permitted, or the Lord delivered. In Hebrew, it's the same word. 
God is in control, it says. He permits things to be done. He grants things to people. He delivered people. God permitted the Hebrews to be taken from their land. He allowed them to be taken from the land. God permitted that Daniel find favor amongst those that he was learning with. God delivered them with knowledge. In fact, Daniel 2.20 says, Praise be to, to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness, and light dwells with Him. The point of that is God is ultimately in control. In Daniel 3, we have the fiery furnace. The king basically says, who can save you? What God can save you? Well, Daniel 4, we have him talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. We could keep going through this, but I think you get the point uh, that God is in control of our lives. God is in control of our kingdom. God is in control of our world. He permits things to happen. And it continues in chapter 7. Look at verse 6. It says, After that I looked, and there was before me another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. So we see here God is still in control. He's given authority for them to rule. In verse 12 it says, The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now, Daniel 7 begins as, as the word I used earlier, uh, you know, apocalypse. It's a genre or a style of writing. And, and this style of writing has to do with our future. And usually it's an ominous type of, you know, you, know, you hear of those movies that are like that. And, and it's kind of ominous, kind of got a, you know, darkness to it. But it's a style of writing. It's a style of writing that we don't always understand. Some of it we get, plain as day. And some of it we kind of go, <laughs> I have no clue. I have no clue what that, that is, or what it says. You know, Isaiah has four chapters that are like this also. Isaiah 24 through 27. Some of it we get, we, some of it we don't. Ezekiel and Zechariah and then Daniel. All of these books are this type of you know, writing. It means an unveiling or a revelation of something hidden. Even the word apocalypse or you can use the word revelation, like I said. In fact, you know, it's the book, you know, that's the name of the book. A revelation is, is a revealing of something hidden. And that's the primary goal of these books. It tells us that God is in complete control over history. We always talk about how God is in control over our lives. We bring it down to the, to the minute, okay, God is in control of my life, and I need to make sure I, I don't take that control back from God. Sometimes we need to broaden our view to say, you know what, God's in control of our city. <laughs> you like that one, huh? Well, I don't agree with what the city's doing. Ultimately, God is in control. God is in control of our nation. Well, I, either I like the way our nation is going or I don't like the way our nation is going. Ultimately, God is in control of our nation. Even if it doesn't look like He is in control. We have evil kingdoms. I mean, North Korea just shelled South Korea for no reason whatsoever. In Afghanistan this week, 
A Christian church was completely attacked and, and they killed something like 60 some odd people just for worshiping on a Sunday. But these type of writings, these type of chapters within the book remind us that even though we look at that stuff and we go, man, this world's out of control, that God is still in control, especially over history. God is control over history. So it reveals something to us and reminds us that He is in control. Now these revelations use a lot of imagery, a lot of, you know, you got to really think, think it through and go, man, what did, the, what did he just say? What, what, did, what did this just say? And let me go back, a lion, but it looked like something else. It kind of uses all of that. So it's difficult for us because we're not familiar with this type, style of imagery. These guys reading it back then would go, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about because they, they think like that. Like the horns. Well, the horns to us, we just go horn. You know, is it a trumpet or a cornet? What kind of horn is it? Well, for them, horns represented, a, it was a symbol of power. God is called the Ancient of Days. and In fact, verse 9 it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow. His hair on his head looked like, uh, or uh, hair of his head was like wool, or as white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. Now, God here is depicted literally as an old man. Is God an old man? Well, yes and no. I mean, he's been around forever, so we could call him an old man. But really, it's imagery. He's, you know, they're, they're, they're showing him as a, a wise older person here at this point. There's symbolic imagery that conveys a message to us. And we have to kind of grapple with these, these uh, symbolism that's in here. It's like Revelation when Satan is portrayed and depicted as a, as a dragon. And his tail just sweeps across the sky and a third of the scars, stars just totally disappear. We have to grapple with that. What does that mean and all this kind of stuff? And we think, man, they would have meant something to them, so therefore what do they mean to us? So the main purpose of this revelation is one thing. It is to comfort those who are in oppression with a revelation that God is in control of history. These things are are usually written to those who are being oppressed, whether whether it's a government, whether it's a kingdom, whether it's society as a whole, oppressing, uh, oppressing Christians. Pressing those who, who believe in God, who, who live a certain way, who make decisions a certain way. And society looks upon that and says, man, that's just wrong. That's just weird. They're the right-wing fanatics, if you want to call it that. However you want to say it. Well, it's silly. They believe in God. And that oppression starts small and builds to, to a point where a whole country will oppress Christians. Now, we only really have so much time this morning, and, and, and we could go all over the places with this. But if you want a better understanding of Daniel 7, read Revelation 13. It's kind of a fun parallel and, and what's going to happen there. But, but basically, in, in, in Daniel here, verses 2 through 14, basically is a, is a description of a vision. And here's the vision. One beast, two beasts, four beasts, and they have all these horns. I'm sorry, I've been reading too much of my Dr. Seuss, getting ready for my baby. One beast, two beasts, four beasts. But the vision climaxes in, in verse 13 and 14 where the Son of Man is given all authority and the kingdom. All these evil empires and, and, and kings 
But it all turns out for, for good for the righteous within the kingdom. And he's basically saying, take comfort because the Son of Man establishes a kingdom that will never end. We also notice that there's kind of two interpretations within this one. In verses 15 and 16, Daniel says, you know, I don't get it. Help me. So the angel gives, gives him a hand in verse 18, and it says in verse 18, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Take heart. That is good news, especially when we look out and say, man, how am I portrayed as a Christian within society? Take heart. We receive the kingdom. The saints, you and I, will receive the kingdom. And then in verse 26, we actually get another interpretation. And it says in verse 26, But the court will sit, and the power, of the, power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I, but I kept the matter to myself. And when a guy like Daniel, after we've studied his life and everything that he's, you know, at, at, at age, what, 83, gets thrown into a lion's den, as we, we study who Daniel is, and here we see Daniel was troubled. Wow. But we get the moral of the story here. God is in control. And it will bring, you know, all things forth for, for the good of his people. He'll just, you know, all things will come into to into the light, and we will understand the good the good things that he has for us. And he will set up an everlasting kingdom, and he'll hand it over to us. But now let's go back to the beast. Who are they and what are they? Well, we have four bizarre beasts who come up out of the sea. We would call them mutants. I mean, we, I mean, this would make a good movie. And in fact, I'm sure that they've done several different versions of this in some of the movies here. But they're horrifying. They're hybrids. They're a terrifying beast. So the beasts come out of the sea, and the first one is a, is a lion, but the wings of an eagle. It is a lion kind of an eagle thing with human elements kind of thrown in there because he's standing up. He's a hybrid creature. And it's always evil, you know, it's always an evil creature uh, in, a, in a revelation when it, when it kind of mutated into something else. It's a mutation of what really God has intended. God intended some um, creatures to stay the same. You know, you wouldn't, in fact, some of the scriptures even say, and I think it's Leviticus, it talks about you don't even plow a, a field with a donkey and an ox together. You keep them separate. Why? I don't know. God just set it up that way. Don't blend the, the seeds of, of two different types of plants the scriptures talk about. So anytime you see a blending of creatures, it is bad. So this lion, eagle, human thing with, you know, all these human features has a quality of strength and swiftness like a lion and like an eagle. He rules, you know, he rules over his dominion. And most scholars believe that this, this kingdom that it represents is Babylon. 
There are four kings, and the first one is Babylon, and maybe specifically Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know completely, but most scholars believe that, and I'm going to trust them because I'm not you know, as smart as they are. But an evil, you know, an evil kingdom that is demonic and persecutes and God, oppresses God's people. That's what he did in the beginning of his kingdom. Okay, the second beast. It is a bear with three ribs coming out of its mouth. It's very unclear here. It's, you know, it's just odd. We really don't know who it is when it comes to the kingdom. A bear is a powerful animal with a huge appetite. And it says arise and devour. It's a very evil kingdom. So the thought is that it either represents the Persians or the combined Medo-Persian Empire. And the third one is the same way. We don't really know who it is. This one is a leopard, and the leopards are, are very fast, but this thing has wings. So imagine him being even faster. And they think that some think that this could actually, actually, actually really mean Persia because they conquered very, very rapidly. But others say that this is, this is Greece under the, you know, Alexander the Great because by the age 30 he conquered everybody and he turned to his generals and said, give me another nation to conquer. I mean, he was just so good at it. And it's not really essential for us to, to understand which nation this was. Because the whole point is really about the fourth beast. And now the focal point of the passage. And how do we know it's the focal point? Well, the description about this part is longer. And it's repeated. Anytime the, the scriptures repeat something, it, it signifies, hey, this is important. You know, it's like a dad or a mom saying something, you know, 40 million times to their children. It's important for them to understand. It has to do with the horns, which the rest of chapters 8 through 12 deal with. There's really two thoughts on this. This is either Greece or Rome. It could be the ten horns represent the ten kings after Alexander Great, and the eleventh horn would be uh, Antithicus of Epiphanes. He was a Greek ruler who conquered the, the homeland of the Jews. And, and in one, uh, 167 to 164 B.C., he was in charge for over three years. He stopped all sacrifices to God in the temple. No more of that silly stuff, he said. He went on uh, to go into the, literally go into the Holy of Holies, which, that was a big no-no. You just didn't do that. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of, uh, of, you know, the altar of the Holy of Holies, which is the holiest of all places. And a pig would have been, you know, it's the worst kind of animal for a Jew because the Lord said, don't, don't deal with pigs, basically, to the Jews. And the epiphanies is a self-proclaimed title. Epiphanies means a manifestation of Zeus. I am God in human flesh, is what this, what this guy was saying. And the interpretation kind of makes sense because the description of, of him being boastful and, and arrogant, you know, as Daniel uses those words, it kind of makes sense. But the second option of this is that, it be, you know, the beast being Rome. And the reason for, to argue the fourth one is Rome is because this is kind of what the New Testament seems to be saying. We're not totally you know, clear on this, but it, it seems that that's what it says. The beast of Revelation you know, 13 seems to be Rome to some extent. And the New Testament as a whole kind of represents it as Rome. So you have the four kingdoms, and then you have Jesus and God's kingdom. 
The ten kings could have been the ten kings, of, uh, you know, the ten emperors of Rome. The fact that we have difficulty deciding which one it is, you know, Greece uh, with the ten kings that came after Alexander the Great or, or the ten kings or, and the ten emperors of, of Rome, you know, it's... It's good that we don't always know this because it's a good reminder to us that maybe we're not supposed to know every little thing. Man, I'd love it if God would just tell me every little plan about my life, wouldn't you? Lord, if you could just tell me what's going to happen in this situation. I, 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 you know, I, I wouldn't worry so much. And Lord's sitting there probably thinking, no, you'd actually worry pretty much. You'd worry a lot more. We just want to know. The point of this message is this. These kingdoms are established. They appear to be in control. That control is given to them by God. They will misuse that control and they will persecute His people. And the Lord will come and at that point He will establish His kingdom and we as the saints will inherit, inherit it all. I mean, that's the overall principle of the New Testament. That's exactly what Daniel is saying in Daniel 7. Now, one of the main focal points here on this vision is of who? Jesus Christ himself. And in verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And it just, you know, just so happens that, that this, this title, the Son of Man, is a title that Jesus loved to use about himself in the Gospels. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and we believe that, the King of Israel. But if he did so in a very open and clear way, the Jews would have killed him very early in his ministry. But God was in control, so he didn't do it like that. Because they, they really couldn't stand who Jesus was. And anything that could be used against, against Jesus, they would use against him. And throughout Jesus' ministry, you know, he heals a man, he goes, don't tell anybody. I healed you, but, but don't tell anybody. I'll tell you who I am, but, but just leave it alone. The lame can walk, don't tell anybody. Because he, he didn't want things to start off too quickly because there was a timing to it. There was a timing to, to, for him to do his father's will. The perfect timing that went along with who he was. And in John chapter 6, Jesus literally just kind of disappears from the crowd. He was there and all of a sudden he's just gone. Because the crowd's sitting there going, we want to make him king. And they started kind of getting you know, all riled up and we need a new king and we need to make you king. And he just kind of disappears. He gets out of the air because the timing wasn't there yet. But this one title Jesus really takes for himself. Because it, is, you know, it described exactly who he was. In fact... This title is only used by Jesus and it's only said you know, by another person one other time in the New Testament. It was one of his accusers who, who said, you know, you know, he said that he is the Son of God. This is a very important title. So this title is used by Jesus. But the reason why they didn't kill him over this title is because the title was used so many times in the Old Testament by the prophets of Israel. It's one of Ezekiel's favorite titles for himself. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the Jewish leaders kind of think, you know, he was calling himself a prophet. Well, if he just calls himself a prophet, we can kind of tolerate that. We can just kind of go along with that. But not if he calls himself 
the Son of Man. In other words, the real Son of Man. In other words, the Son of God. But we know exactly what Jesus is calling himself here. He's calling himself God. It is the passage, this usage that he has in mind here. Jesus didn't say it like Ezekiel said it. He didn't call himself a prophet. He was calling himself God. He meant it like in verse 13 that says, In my vision at night I looked and there was a, before me was one like the son of a man or of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And we see this you know, also in Matthew 26. He's at, you know, he's at trial before the high priest. And the high priest says, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is, it is as you say, Jesus replies. But I, tell, uh, but I say to all of you, in the future will you, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And do you know what happens next? The high priest just literally freaks out and, and tears all his garments off and shouts, Blasphemy! Blasphemy is what you're saying! Jesus proclaims himself as the Son of Man, which means the Son of God. He is the one who's going to come. And He has given authority, glory, and sovereign power. So all this week I've been talking with the Lord on this one. Okay, Lord, this whole Daniel dream stuff, I don't get it all. I can, I can teach what I sort of get, but, you know, where do I go with all of this? Well, how do I, you know, wrap it up? I mean, this, this is a sermon, Lord, and, and, and you, know, you always got to wrap it up at the end, they always say. And, you know, okay, I, I, you know, I did learn some things and some odd things, but Lord, what do we do with this? And this is where the Lord took, kind of took me. He said to me, not literally in a voice out loud, but as, you know, I was talking with him and discussing things in my heart and everything, he said to me, well, what is it about? Just tell them what it's about. Well, Lord, that's, that is easy, but I really need something to wrap it up. No, no, Alan. What is it about? Well, it's about you and that you are in control. You're the sovereign judge sitting on the throne, and everything that occurs is in your hands. And he was like, well, great, Alan, you understand. And anytime the Lord kind of says that to me or prompts me like that, the Holy Spirit kind of speaks to me like that, I'm thinking, oh, great, here it comes. He goes, do you believe it? And I, I sat with that. Yes, I believe it. But I also realize that sometimes I forget it. I believe it, but I forget it. Sometimes I, I literally forget that he literally is in control. 
when things are out of control in my life and I'm sitting here going, ah, get so frustrated, I forget he is in control. Sometimes I worry and I fret and I think about stuff that I shouldn't be worrying about and you know, fretting about and thinking about. We let the worries of this world, the struggles that we go through, all the stuff that overwhelms us, all the work that needs to be done. And then I remember His kingdom is the one kingdom that will last forever. The world will, you know, around us will pass away. And in 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of a sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does, does the will of the Father lives forever. So the question is this. Which kingdom are you living for? Which kingdom are you living for? Are we living as part of the world who is ruled by the, by the beast, the evil beast, who ultimately persecute God's people? Are we living to support that world? Are we, are we living to, to benefit from that world? Or instead, are we living with our eyes on eternity? On the kingdom that has no end, that will be ultimately given to us? How I want to end this today is I want to pray for the worries of our future. How many of you are worried about your future? Yeah. How many of you are worried about, okay, this weekend? Or this week? Or Christmas coming up? You can't even think about your future because you're dealing with the now and you're worried. Or you're sitting there going, man, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what the next year is going to look like, much less, you know, we're supposed to have a five-year and a ten-year and a twenty-year plan. (laughs) Plan? I can't, I I just got to get through tomorrow. I want to pray for your worries. Give them over to the Lord. Because His kingdom, when you believe in Him, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that's what we should be thinking about. And not the worries of today. Let's pray. Lord, I just lift these people up to you. I pray that we all come to a point in our lives where when we're worrying or we're fretting or we're just thinking about over and over and it just doesn't get out of our mind, Lord, that that you remind us that you are in control. That you remind us that you put kingdoms together and you take kingdoms apart. You put lives together and you take lives apart, Lord. That you are in control of our life. That somewhere in the middle of all this mess, you're there. Somewhere in the middle of all this Uh, the stuff that's going on. We can find you, and you have a purpose for that. Sometimes we understand that purpose, and sometimes we don't, Lord. But I pray that that you allow the Holy Spirit to, to help us rely on you and know that you are in control. Whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's work, 
whether it's paycheck, whether it's health, whether it's our children or our parents, whatever it is, Lord, we hand it over to you. And we pray that you don't allow us to take it back, that we don't fight with you about it, Lord. You are the everlasting God. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You stretched your hands out across this world, you know, across the skies and, and the heavens, and you created everything. You created me in my mother's wound. You know the days that, that I have numbered, Lord. You care about me. And I pray that I realize that you care about me when I'm worrying about these things. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May you take that worry off your shoulder. May his face never turn for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.